two of the most influential bands in music history. Joy Division held this mythology. Not knowing the history, young people hear New Order and they love it. One incredible tale. They're uncompromising, rebellious, they push the envelope. There's just like that darker undercurrent. Just there's nothing like it. They sort of changed the world twice. This is Transmissions, the definitive story of New Order and Joy Division. March 1980. Barely six months after the release of Unknown Pleasures and after a short UK tour supporting the Buscocks, it was time for Joy Division to go back into the studio to record a second album titled Closer. And to capitalise on the band's growing success and to help evolve their sound, a decision was taken to move to the capital and use a recording studio built by Pink Floyd, Britannia Row Studios. There was a great excitement about moving to London and staying away from Manchester, which was really our first time that we'd recorded like that. It was Martin Hannett's idea to go to London. We'd already worked in 10cc's studio. I think he fancied Pink Floyd's as being like the most modern, shall we say, or one of the best equipped recording studios in London. And to be honest with you, once we got into Brit Row, it was great. It was like a different world from Strawberry. We were working during the day, which was uh, fantastic as opposed to working during the cold nights. I remember the highlight of the first day being when they brought sandwiches round unprompted as part of the deal for getting the studio. Now, I must admit, it felt like going to your grands. They were high-quality sandwiches, I must say, and very enjoyable for that. After the steep learning curve of recording their first album, the band were keen to stamp their authority on their second outing. We were more confident in what we were doing. Bernard and I in particular felt that we were definitely going to contribute more to the mixing and make sure that we maybe found a point where we could meet Martin Hannett somewhere instead of Martin doing it all on his own and us feeling we weren't getting the best representation. With a plan in place, it was time to record a new song which had struck a note with the fans on tour. But before long, tensions between the band and producer simmered to the surface. Bernard Sumner. Love will tear us apart. What? Um, we don't feel it sounds that great. It sounds great, what are you on about? Um, no, no, um, we think it sounds shit. What? Right. No, we've got to do it again, Mike. We've got to do it again. We've been playing it live. It goes down really well and we want to capture the live essence of it. So he was bugged that we didn't like his original version. So we record it again. We just spent a day recording it. We did all the drums. We did Ian's vocal and it was overdub time. It was about two o'clock in the morning. Steve Morris, the drummer, had gone home. You know, he likes an early night, Steve. And I was still working on some 12-string guitar melodies two o'clock in the morning. And then I finished them about two o'clock. Martin turned around to Rob and went, right, Rob, get Steve back. He's right over the other side of London. We had a 
flat somewhere near Harrods somewhere and we were in Islington. We went, no, no, get Steve. I need Steve now to finish this track. And he was just being arse, you know. So Rob phones Steve. Steve drives all the way across London, arrives at the studio, totally pissed off. And Martin goes, right, back in. He said, I want you to double track the snare drum. And you never double track a snare drum. You never double track a snare drum because it phases and flanges and makes all sorts of weird noises. And Steve was just so annoyed. And he just whacked the hell out of that bloody snare drum. Now, whether Martin got Steve in at that time to get some attitude out of him on the snare drum or whether Martin just did it to piss us all off because we'd pissed him off because we made him do it again, you know. It's hard to tell. But even after several re-records, Martin Hannah's preoccupation with finding the perfect mix quickly became an obsession. The only mix I ever got invited to was when Rob Gretton phoned me up one night at home, half three in the morning, and said to me, get to the studio, Martin's mixing Love Will Tear Us Apart again. Get your ass down there. And I had to go, banged on the door for about three quarters of an hour till the bastards let me in. And you've never seen a more shocked face as Martin Hannitz that I was there at quarter past four in the morning. He was going around mixing Love Will Tears Apart, like in search of the perfect mix. Because of the reputation that Factory had, the studios would let him book and come in, you know, instead of getting a note off Factory. And he was remixing and remixing, and it was going over and over and round and round. It was the only one he got stuck on. He just could not satisfy himself with Love Will Tears Apart. One evening, while Hannett and the band were scrabbling in the studio, they were interrupted by a group of young Irish lads, Stephen Morris. I remember during Torturous, Lovell Terrors Apart, drummathon Mark Three, that the doorbell went at uh, Britannia Row. A bunch of very young Irish boys turned up mm-hmm. who um, announced themselves as the band U2. Martin was uh, yeah, being touted as the... Uh, producer for their album. I remember filing into the studio while I was like doing the tom break on Level Terrors Apart for the gazillionth time. The young lad with the strange name Bono listened to what I was doing and he seemed rather taken with it. He said, I don't know what it is that you're doing, but it adds a lot to the track, which I thought was very nice of him. And Martin took it as an indication that what I was doing was actually shit and... <laughs> Bind it. U2's Bono. We were waiting in the green room or whatever you call it, and I remember just looking at all their stuff, and they had a lot of vinyl out, and there was things like Frank Sinatra, Kraftwerk, was like Bartok, there was classical music, electronic music, Frank fucking Sinatra. What, who are these people? And they came, they were very kind, came out to say hello to the band and shook their hand or whatever it was. And then this man with the the weight of whole universe in his voice. I don't know, this, this crooner from some black hole, you know, the Dark Lord stepped forward. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to meet Ian Curtis. And I put my hand out and he went, all right. 
And I couldn't believe the sound he made. It was just this sweet, sweet sound. It's just this beautiful soul. But he sang from, from this other place, this big radio live transmission. You know, it was this, hello, how you doing? You okay? And just just most gentle conversation. It was a very special moment. With the recording sessions finally taking shape, it was time for designer Peter Saville to help create an album artwork that would be as memorable as its predecessor. They gave me the material that they wanted for Unknown Pleasures and I did the best I could do with it. Then it became collaborative. So when they were recording closer, they didn't have time to go looking for pictures. It's always like this with groups. First album title, tracks, cover. It is something that they're prepared for. You know, they've been thinking about it sometimes for years and then they get busy and then they don't have that kind of time anymore. That was the case with Closer. They were in a studio, Britannia Row in London, recording an album and I was, you know, being me a few miles away. I I didn't know what they were doing. I didn't hear anything. I don't think we even discussed the title that day. But... By this time, this was, let's say, 12 months into factory, you know, Rob understood that I always had something that I wanted to do. So effectively, he came to me and said, what are you into? You know, I'd done unknown pleasures for them and they'd given me this scientific diagram and I thought I needed to complement that in some way and I, I didn't really have anything like that. Instead... What Peter was into at the time was a French photographer called Bernard-Pierre Wolfe. And there was one photograph by Wolfe which caught the attention of the band, an image of an Italian tomb sculpted by Dimitrio Pernio in 1910. Eventually I showed them the Bernard-Pierre Wolfe pictures and said, well, if you really want to know personally what I'm into, I'm, I'm sure it's not relevant to you at all, but actually I'm fascinated by these photographs at the moment. And they were fascinated too, and they chose one of the pictures that they liked. And so it was serendipity that day that we chose the image for Closer. And then ultimately, you know, any attempt to, to seek a consensus, you know, became dysfunctional and divisive. Each of them disagreeing for the sake of it, uh, and inevitably a direction or a decision would just default to me. If the dynamic between the band was sometimes dysfunctional and divisive, the frenetic energy evident from the start was burning as bright as ever especially on stage. But there was a problem. It was a bit like being a surfer who's just caught a wave, you know, and you just got up on the wave and you're like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> well, this is fun. <laughs> What's going to happen when the wave hits the beach, though, you know? So there's always this dark cloud in the sky 
we were like, everything's great, this is fun, but Ian's going a bit strange and he's, uh, he's not very well and his, his moods are starting to change. But let's not think about that. We've got a gig coming up next week. Let's think about the gig, it's going to be great. So you don't need to put that to the back of your mind. After marrying his childhood sweetheart, Deborah, at just 19, and with a baby daughter not even six months old, the tug of war between Ian's home life and his nomadic and increasingly demanding music career was starting to take its toll. We were all knackered because we were trying to fit everything in, we were trying to fit the gigs in, which were the way that you really made your mark on the world. And you, you soon lost heart. You know, every time you didn't get a gig, you lost heart. And he would be the one. Don't worry, don't, come on. And yet, ironically, he was ill. He was suffering. He was going through a terrible time in his personal life. Really, it should have been us picking him up and running with him, you know, not the other way around. We're doing too much, really. We're doing far too much. But you did do too much because you do, you know, that's what you wanted to do. You never knew you'd get the chance to be doing it again. So you kind of you just went for it. We never said no. Ian wasn't going to complain because, you know, he didn't you know, want to be seen to be letting anybody down or anything like that. You never really knew what he was thinking. You just asked him if it was OK. And he'd just smile and say, yeah, I'm OK. With cracks appearing in his marriage, Ian began suffering epileptic seizures in late 1978. I mean, sometimes, unfortunately, Ian used to have a fit on stage. I remember one song when the drums stopped, but Ian carried on dancing for a bit, and then that turned into a, a grand mal fit, and we had to carry him, physically carry him off stage. And when we were taking him through, I think it was a gig where we supported the Stranglers, and we were taking him backstage and people were pretty unsympathetic about it, making rude comments and stuff, which was shocking then. Yeah, people can be pretty cynical, really, but you have to tough it out and fuck you, you know. There was one night, I remember, Ian and Martin had a wonderful routine where they'd settled down with Ian in the control room smoking away with a drink. And I remember being there one night when Ian had gone to the toilet and was gone a little bit too long. And Martin said to me, okay, go and see if he's all right. And I fully expected him to be all right. But when I went into the toilet, he'd had a fit and he'd fallen and he's banged his head on the uh, sink. So he had a gash on his head. I had to sit with him holding his tongue till he'd finished fitting. And then, you know, when he came round, he came round very quickly. You know, there was a bit of confusion when he did, but he soon 
sort of rose to the occasion and then you were like, oh, come on, mate, we'll take you to hospital. And he was going, no, 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 no. And literally we we just cleaned him up. He cleaned himself up and was straight back into the um, studio. So again, you know, you had that weird feeling of like maybe you should be at home in bed, but he was telling you that he was all right. And again, the guilt in that you were eager to, um, yeah, to just let it go back to normal. Personality had changed since he started on the medication. I mean, they changed his medication quite a lot and gradually seemed to, like, suck the life out of him a little bit. He seemed to drain him a bit. The level of care was extremely poor and you were given a blunt instrument set of drugs that, you know, someone had wrote, discovered in the 1940s, worked somewhat at controlling epilepsy by hammering everything down like a hammer. There was no, no refinement to um, pharmaceuticals. Incidentally, he wasn't born with his epilepsy. I assumed at the time that epilepsy was something you were born with. No, it's not. His mother told me it was the stress, in her opinion, that brought it on. Factory Records' Lindsay Reid, who was at the time married to label boss Tony Wilson. During the recording of Closer, Ian became intimate with Belgian journalist Anique Honoré. His life became even more complicated, even more difficult to negotiate. On the 6th of April, 1980, Ian attempted suicide. Procession moves on, the shouting is over. Raised to the glory he had a girlfriend as well as a wife so I naively thought that maybe it would be a good idea to get him away from both following the suicide attempt you know that I naively thought perhaps he was having a problem choosing between them and I don't think that was the case at all well the difficulty was that he had a child with Debbie and obviously if there's a family involved and a baby involved it's very different but I don't think in his mind there was no question. I mean, he, he knew he loved Anique. And anyway, so he came to stay with me and Tony, but Tony was never there. Of course, he, he was very confused and depressed and he couldn't see a way out of it. What do you do if you're in love with somebody, but you've also got a child? Possessed by a fury that burns from Confused, depressed, and drinking heavily, Ian decamped to his friend's house. Bernard. It's really complicated because Ian had, had split up with his wife then and was, had been staying with me for two weeks. But I used to sit up, I was pretty much an insomnia. I used to sit up all hours of the night and I think Ian got a bit sick of that, going to bed at five in the morning. He was in a, a pretty, not a great mental state, you know. He was handling it, but he was pretty upset because he just split up with his wife, you know, and, and things were coming on top for him, as we say in Manchester. 
at the weekend he went to stay with his his mum and dad um, over the other side of Manchester. There was a band on Factory called Section 25 and they lived over in a place near Blackpool called Pontenley Fylde. One of them had like a speedboat and there's a river near them and and it was a dead nice weekend and they were driving it up and down the river and they invited me over so I went over and we'd go out on the river have a perfect day on the river you know it's beautiful sunshine and we're having a right laugh you know and I was supposed to be going on tour on the, the Monday I think this was a Sunday so I think it was a Sunday and anyway, we, after the weekend, we were supposed to be on a tour of the States. And we get back to the house, you know, I'm just drying off with a towel and that because we went swimming and stuff. And the phone rings and it's Rob. He just says, um, I've got some bad news. I said, really bad news. I said, what? And he said, Ian's committed suicide. And I said, what? What, he's tried again? He said, no, no, he's, no, he's dead, you know. So... So it was just an enormous shock and I remember the room spinning round, you know, and just like you'd been hit with a sledgehammer. I was at home in Moston when I heard the news. I was actually having Sunday dinner with uh, my partner. The phone rang. I was one of the very few with a phone, actually, home phone, and it was somebody looking for Rob Gretton, which was weird. And I said, um, well, why, why are you looking for Rob Gretton? And then he told me he was a police sergeant in Macclesfield and he had news for Rob Gretton. So I was like, shit, you know, what's what's the news? And the news was that, you know, Ian Curtis had, had taken his, his own life. I went a bit numb and sort of hung up, went back, sat down, finished my dinner, which was amazing. And then just sat there staring at the space. And after a while, Iris, as it was, asked me what the phone call was about. And yeah, I just said, Ian's killed himself. So yeah, it was just bizarre, bizarre moment. You know, it's like time stood still and you just were so numb. You couldn't even take it in or react in the, in the right way. I was in the kitchen at my mum's house. I'd been out to West Park. The afternoon, it was a Sunday afternoon. It's a really nice day. And the phone rang and it was okay. And he said, It's Ian. He's done it again. And I thought it just meant because he'd, he'd tried to kill himself. Yeah, once before I thought, Oh, oh God, the daft bastard's tried again. And he said, No, no, he's, he's actually done it this time. I just couldn't take it in. It's like, Oh, is he all right? And no, he's not. And yeah, just go into shock, really, don't you? So I'm like, stupidly in shock, I think I said, so are we still going to America then? Which is fucking daft. Because obviously we weren't. But um, yeah, so I was like, well, have you told Rob? And look, he'd been trying to call Rob, trying to call Tony, and couldn't find anybody. And uh, so the police had... Just got on to him. Uh, it was just as the, you know, he's just numb. Just absolutely numb. I was at home and um, it's just, it was a really beautiful sunny day, which seemed at odds with uh, the news, which was as bleak as it could possibly be. Once the papers got hold of it, it's great, you know, nice tabloid story, isn't it? 
dead rock star. Yeah, I like to do, to get it wrong, make it more lurid. Yeah, I remember one story. It was um, Manchester singer dies of heroin overdose. And another one, this Manchester singer found hanging from a lamppost in town centre. And it's just, you know, can you make it any worse? It was ridiculous. I think most people were shocked as, as we were. It was horrible. Pretty horrible. And I don't think as a day goes by when um, we we could have done more to change this outcome. And you know, Rob Gretton used to sit there and he'd, he'd say to us, "Don't worry, don't worry." He said, "You know, in five years' time, in ten years' time." Joy Division are going to be bigger than ever. And we were like, oh, you know, as, if, as if we would possibly care about after losing Ian, something like that. So, I mean, there's always a helplessness and a frustration and embarrassment. So this is permanence. Love shattered pride. What was was Grief does have an element of anger. You know, that's one of the well-known parts of grief, isn't it? We were all grieving. I didn't get angry with Ian. Well, maybe, well, Tony's words to him at the morgue were, you daft bugger. I never felt any anger. I felt absolute sorrow that, you know. But I'm sure it's part of grief, anger, depression. It's quite natural. The awful thing about suicide is the person who commits suicide their problems are over and yet yours and everybody left behind his family his parents everybody else in every occasion theirs are just beginning and they last all your life I watched it slip away Following Ian's death on the 18th of May 1980, and with Closer slated for release the following month, the band were struggling to know what to do next. What can you do, you know? You just have to accept the things that you can't do anything about in life. So eventually, after a period of depression, uh, I just picked myself up and, well, the whole band picked themselves up, you know, and we just started again. There was no other option. There's nothing else we could do. There was nowhere, nowhere else to go. Designer Peter Savile. One morning, the phone rang in my little studio flat where I lived, and it was Tony, quite early in the day. And he phoned to tell me that Ian had died. And he was in shock. I was in... It was such a shock. I mean, I didn't really know... I barely understood the conversation, you know. I mean, it was so unexpected that I was in a bit of a daze. 
And it was during that conversation that it dawned on me that we had a tomb on the cover. The cover was in production at that time. The artwork was finished and it was at the printer's. And I had to stop Tony and say, Tony, you know we have a tomb on the cover. (laughs) Which was a bit of an oh fuck moment from Tony, I can tell you. I mean, just the weirdness of it. The weirdness of it. You know, like maybe a few weeks previously, collectively with Ian, I had shown them some pictures of of a cemetery and they had collectively chosen a, a picture of a tomb. And now Ian's dead. It was too weird. It was too weird. And Tony had to take that question back to the group. Do we go ahead with this? Because it it might seem incredibly exploitative. It could seem kind of vulgar. But they, they concluded that they'd chosen the picture together. And so they would stick with that collective decision. I mean, you know, I can't look at the cover of Closer without wondering what was in Ian's mind when they chose that picture. It was quite prophetic in a funny sort of way. And the night of the Berry gig, he'd just come out of hospital from the suicide attempt. And that was the night he came home with us to our house following the gig. And there was a riot because he didn't perform fully. But he stood in the wings of the stage and he told me, standing in the wings, he he could see. He just saw them going on and on and on without him. He wasn't afraid of it at all. It was like... He knew that was what was going to happen. This is a crisis I knew had to come Destroying the balance I kept Doubting and settling and turning around Wondering what will come next Is this a role that you wanted to live? I was foolish to ask for so much Without the protection and infancy's guard It all falls I've never seen a singer act towards a band the way that he did. He wanted you to be as much a part of it as he did. There was no selfishness and there was no vying for position. The guy wanted you to just be as lauded in many ways as he was. And yet, you know, to listen to his lyrics and to, to hear him sing and deliver and watch him deliver, my God, you'd have to be good. <laughs> you would have to be good. There aren't many people in Ian Curtis's circle. You know, if you look at Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, there are very few vocalists that can lead a group the way that Ian Curtis did. I mean, probably I I can imagine a Jim Morrison-type pathway for, for Ian, that perhaps to have you know, sort of slipped away from music and become a writer. I don't think that Ian would have stayed in a group forever and ever. He made this incredibly authentic gesture. I've referred to it as the the last true story in pop. I mean, he wrote something, he, he said how he felt, and then to all intents and purposes, he sort of underscored it with his life. And looking at Ian's situation from the outside, it, he meant and he felt everything that he wrote. Though his death was perhaps, you know, accidental in some ways, it brokered this contract with every individual uh, 
sharing those kinds of feelings. Moving along in our God-given ways, safety is sought by the fire. On the 18th of July, 1980, Joy Division released their second and final album, Closer. Is this the gift that I wanted to give? Forgive and forget what they teach. Go pass through the deserts and wastelands once more and watch as they drop by the beach. Following brilliant reviews, it reached the top ten of the UK music charts. The album contains many incredible songs. Isolation. Heart and soul. Twenty-four hours. And the eternal. Just watching the trees and the leaves And in the 40 years since its release, Closer has been described as the crown jewel of post-punk. The most brilliant rock album of the 1980s and a start-to-finish masterpiece. A month prior to the album's release, Joy Division put out a single which not only proved to be a musical epitaph to their late singer, but is considered one of the finest records ever made, beloved by fans, writers and musicians working today. Here's singer and guitarist Anna Calvi. I was so obsessed with the intro to Love Will Tear Us Apart, the way it starts as one thing and then turns into something completely different when the main riff comes in compared to the, the beginning. I was so obsessed with that and I think I've spent 10 years trying to write a song that has as good an intro as that but I've never been able to do it. I think it gives it an urgency and the kind of honesty because I guess sometimes musicians can hide behind their technique whereas you feel with that band it's like everything is heart on sleeve and it's like this is everything that we are and there's a vulnerability to that that's very um, affecting. This is Thurston Moore from the band Sonic Youth. Love Will Tear Us Apart is assuredly say is like an impeccable composition. Every aspect of it is that. It's not something you can really enforce. It happens really sort of in a charmed way. And you can sort of hear it with that piece of music. If I was ever sort of preparing a primer for for anybody for music from the revolution that started in 76, that's in the top five. Here's Perry Farrell from Jane's Addiction. My mother took her life and can hear his sadness in his heart. You can hear the desperation in his heart. And where I would listen to it, at the time I was a young musician and I was working as a graphic artist. I was taking pictures for people. I would shoot in this dark room all day long smelling these chemicals. Eventually I got fired because I was doing more of my own stuff than theirs. But that's where I was listening to Joy Division. Again. 
a little more than two years, Joy Division managed to produce two classic albums, plus a song which has earned its place in the list of all-time greats. Ian's life story has been immortalised not just in his music, but also in two feature films, as well as countless documentaries and books. And according to Peter Saville, it was his tragic departure which in reality helped keep the show on the road for years to come. Ultimately, it was Ian whose sacrifice was the, the capital that was then going to sustain Factory Records for a decade. You know, Ian died and that precipitated this unprecedented sale of records. You know, the closer sold, Love Will Tear Us Apart sold, and then the people who bought that, then they went and bought on Unknown Pleasures. And Ian's death was the capital which was then going to sustain Factory for the next 10 years. You can't put that in a marketing plan. You can't put that in a business model. It just happened. moments that I have in music now is always just before the band starts when it's quiet when it's silence you know to think that I shared that moment with Joy Division and then you start to play and those songs that you play can move people and inspire them to such great challenges and achievements in life and then they can turn around to you and say you know what got me through my toughest time and you're like, wow. And I think Ian would be very proud of that. I think he would love the fact that he changed the world. And he's still in it. up in episode 5 with Joy Division over and Ian gone New Order begins We all knew our roles in life and we're happy with those roles the one job that nobody really wanted suddenly became vacant I think when we're in the studio it really reminded us of, of Ian and we really missed the fact that he was not there anymore Plus 3 becomes 4 Again. But it was a bit weird at the beginning, of course, because I'd been to an all-girls school as well, which is a bit of a weird. <laughs> and as New Order's search for a new sound, tensions rise in the studio. Again. It was a ridiculous proposition, really. We should have gone in and kicked the fuck out of him. But, you know, that's something that you, you think and learn afterwards. That's all in the next episode of Transmissions, the podcast. I'm Maxine Peake. The producer is Craig Templeton-Smith and this has been a Cup and Nuzzle production. Mm -hmm.